0: Gracious Father, thank you that Christ has come, and there is joy. We pray that you will give us a a greater understanding of his coming for our lives, for this world. And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Please be seated. How much do you thought do you give to evil? Hopefully you think about that in the right way, not the wrong way. Not thinking about doing evil, but just thinking about evil. I find that I don't think about it all that much. Unless I read or hear or know about stories of murder or abuse or human trafficking, or slavery, or the atrocities of war, or acts of terrorism. I I did think of of evil this week, though. Someone sent me an email message uh, warning about a new computer virus that's going out. That It looks like a uh, greeting card you get, but when you open it, it destroys your hard drive and erases all your information. I, I was thinking about that, and I thought, you know... I sort of get it when people send out emails where well, they want you to respond, giving them all your bank account numbers so they can clear you out. And, you know, I, I understand that they're getting something back for that, but when people just create a computer virus that does nothing but destroy computer information that people have on their computers and get nothing back, I find that hard to grasp why you would want to do that unless evil is somewhere in that. We think about evil, but I'm not sure we think that much about the evil one. Most people, I mean even Christians, don't see evil as, the evil one as, as, as even that real. Or at least not as real as he is and certainly not as much of a problem as he is. And yet the scriptures tell us that the evil one is behind all of the evil that we lament in this world. The scriptures use many names for the evil one, Satan, which means the accuser, the devil, the tempter, the destroyer, the prince of this world, the deceiver, he's a liar, been a murderer from the beginning. He's described as a lion roaming to and fro, seeking people to devour. The evil one is Antichrist. He hates anything God loves. He interjects death into creation. His goal, and his desire is to destroy all that God has created. When I think of that, my mind goes to the image of Mordor in the movie uh, Lord of the Rings. You know, this barren, desolate land. And I I, I think that's the evil one's intent for our world, for our lives. To create in us this barren, desolate nothingness. He hates us. And the evil one's desire is to supplant God's truth in our minds, to undermine our confidence in God, to erode our belief and trust that God is good, to cause us to believe that sin has no consequences. He wants us to focus our attention on the temporal and the immediate rather than on the eternal. And ultimately, he wants to separate us from God. I don't think there's any doubt of the activity and the work of the evil one in this world and the power that he has over people and this world. And John understands that. In fact, he says in chapter 5, verse 19 of his first letter, we know that the whole world is under the control of the evil one. And I suspect we know that far too well because you struggle with sin and I struggle with sin. And and your struggle might not be mine and mine might not be yours, but the struggle is real nonetheless. And the most natural response to our struggles and what we see in this world and, and the work of the evil one is to wonder, isn't there anything we can do about it? It's the exact problem facing the people to whom John addresses his first letter. They're struggling with sin. They're struggling with trying to figure out all the evil in the world. They're they're trying to do the right things, and and sin is continually pressing in upon them. And I think they're probably struggling with two responses, as we might. Denial, well, let's just, sin isn't that important. Or despair, there's absolutely nothing we can do about it anyway. And I suspect that they struggle like that because I suspect we struggle like that. What can we do? We try, we try, we try, and we fail continually. Chapter 3, beginning of verse 7, is John's answer to our struggle. And he writes this, Dear children, do not let anyone lead you astray. He who does what is right is righteous, just as he is righteous. The one who does what is sinful is of the devil because the devil's been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. No one who's born of God will continue to sin because God's seed remains in them. They cannot go on sinning because they've been born of God. And this is how we know who the children of God are and who the children of the devil are. Anyone who does not do what is right is not a child of God, nor is anyone who does not love their brother or sister. Now it seems to me the most obvious solution to this whole problem would be for God to simply eliminate evil and the evil one. Let's just get rid of it. Then we don't have to worry about it anymore. And we wonder why God allows Satan to be able to to do as much as he does. Why does God permit this? Why not just get rid of him? Is it because Satan is so powerful God can't do anything about him? If that's true, then we might as well just go home because we're just wasting our time. If, if Satan and God are equals, we're in big trouble. And there are many people who believe that. They're just opposite sides of good and evil. That Satan and, and God are, are, have the equal amount of power. It's just that Satan's evil and God's good. Nothing could be further from the truth. Yes, there is evil and there is good, but God is almighty. And Satan is not even close to that. So why does God allow his evil ways to continue. I think the simple answer is free will. Our free will is more important to God than making us robots who don't have a choice anymore. I mean, you think about it. If a person doesn't have a choice to obey, are they really being obedient? And God wants relationship with us. And not because we have to, but because we want to. I mean, do you do you really feel like it's a genuine relationship when you are forced to be friends with someone that you don't really want to be? Our typical response to that is rebellion, not love. And love is too important to God to ignore. So, the solution for our sin is not to eliminate the opportunity to sin. The solution to our sin is something far more unique and fascinating and loving. God's solution to our sin, to the presence and the work of evil, is Jesus. John tells us here in verse 8 of chapter 3 that the Son of God appears to destroy the work of the devil. This is why he comes. To destroy means to loose, to untie, to set free, to release, annul, abolish. It doesn't mean to annihilate. It means to render inoperative, to rob of power. It's like taking the weapon out of the person's hands. And John is saying that Jesus can undo what the devil has done. So Satan enslaves, Jesus sets free. Satan destroys, Jesus rebuilds. Satan divides, Jesus unites. And John tells us that it's possible to live free from sin because Christ's coming isn't just about setting us free. It's about doing something about the one who keeps chasing us and chaining us to that sin. John doesn't say that the devil is destroyed. I wish he had said that. He says the works of the devil are destroyed. Temptation will continue to be real, but the irresistibility has been removed. And so the writer of Hebrews says, since the children have flesh and blood, he too shared in their humanity so that by his death, he might destroy him who holds the power of death, that is the devil, and free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. It's an amazing promise. But what's even more amazing to me is the means God chooses to carry out this plan of destroying the works of the devil. If I were in the shoes of the Almighty and I wanted to destroy the work of the enemy, I would send the most powerful force I could possibly muster. I would gather angels and weapons and armies and everything of power and might to put him in his place once and for all. But that isn't God's way. I picture in my mind this eternal battlefield and Satan dressed in army armor ready to fight. And in walks the Almighty. And I don't see a warrior, I don't see armor or weapons, I don't see angels. All I see is a baby. And like Goliath of old, satan "Laugh, got to be laughing, saying, Yahweh, come on, you can do better than that, can't you? A baby? Really? Are you serious? Come on. And you have to admit, it is an awfully strange way to win a battle. You know, we've heard this story so often. We know how the ending comes out. We take it for granted. But think about it for a moment. God is taking an enormous risk in putting this battle into the hands of a baby. Look at those two pictures. Which one of those two people do you think has power? Is there anything more fragile than a baby in the process of childbirth? Unfortunately... Many of us know too well the reality of, of, the, of the fragile nature of childbirth and raising children. You know Things like miscarriages and infant mortality and disease and illness and accidents. All of these things that happen to innocent, vulnerable, susceptible children. And yet, in order to win the battle for the ages, in order to destroy the work of the devil, to set us free from the clutches of the enemy, and to end his threat against us forever, God doesn't gather an army. God doesn't mount up his angels. He does the most unlikely thing in the world. becomes a baby, a helpless little infant. And the Son of God who creates everything into existence, is now able to exist only with the help of one of his creatures. The battle of the ages is won not by God becoming more powerful, but less. By God becoming weak, not strong. Jesus wins through love and humility, not hate and arrogance. And it's totally against the grain of how we think of winning and losing. But don't underestimate the power of this baby. This child has more power in his humble appearance than all of us combined. This child has more strength in his act of surrender than all the greatest armies and the weapons that they could possibly amass. Christ's coming is more than just a mission of mercy. It's more than just a well-planned jailbreak. This is total victory. Now, I suspect you may be thinking, but I don't understand because it's been 2,000 years and it looks to me like the evil one's still pretty active in this world. It looks to me like he's still got a lot of stuff going on. Did Jesus fail? The only answer to that question is, we haven't seen the end yet. It isn't all finished yet. This word destroys in the subjunctive mood and it often carries with it a sense of something completed that hasn't yet been fully revealed. And John is saying that the work of destruction is done. It's finished, but the fullness of its implications have not yet been revealed. It's not that the outcome is in doubt. The outcome is undeniable. It's just that the full and and final revelation of the outcome is still in process. It reminds me of some of the stories that came out of World War II. By the time the Allies got to Berlin, the war was over. They had won. But there were still some battles that were being fought. They were still being attacked in certain places. They still had to, had to win some, some battles, but those battles that they still had left to fight didn't change what the outcome of the war was going to be. It was already decided. It didn't still hang in the balance. It had been settled. It just took some time for everything to be fully experienced. And what we see in Christ's coming is first prophesied in, in Genesis chapter three, when God's when God speaking to the serpent says that these human beings are going to crush your heel. The one is coming who will crush you. And first John 3 8 proclaims that Christ has indeed crushed him and won. And we read the book of Revelation and we get images and glimpses of what that victory really means. Christ comes to release us from the the grip of the evil one. And granted, we will not know the fullness of all this until Christ comes to usher in his kingdom and the devil's sentence is executed. But until then, the heart of the New Testament is that we have power through Christ's coming to live victoriously over the power of sin and the evil one. And that's the hope and the joy of our lives in Christ. We know Jesus wins. And there's confidence then to live in freedom and in hope and to overcome sin in his power. Verse 9 tells us that we cannot be neutral about the evil one. Either we are for Christ or we're for the devil. There is no middle ground. And who we follow is not so much about what we say or what we believe. It's about what we do, about whose behavior our behavior mimics. John says in verse 10, this is how we know who the children of God are, who the children of the devil are. Those who do not do what is right are not God's children, nor are those who do not love their brothers and sisters. And John is telling us that the most clear sign, the clearest sign of, of, of the fact that we're following Christ, that we're living in the power of Christ, is that we love our brothers and sisters. Now, you might be tempted to ask, that's it? That's it? That's how you know? And I would say to you, have you ever tried that, loving your brothers and sisters? It's sort of like a A football player trying to catch a pass over the middle of the field with two 250 pound linemen bearing down on him. It's not as easy as it looks. Or painting a landscape. It's not as easy as it looks. Or making a dress out of strips of fabric. It's not as easy as it looks. Or cooking a Thanksgiving dinner for eight people. It's not as easy as it looks. Or preaching a decent sermon every Sunday when you only work one day a week. (laughs) It's not as easy as it looks. God's calling us to live victorious lives, to overcome the enemy not by power and might, but by love and humility and servanthood like Jesus. Jesus won the battle becoming a baby, and we will win the battle, and we will, ex- we will express that love and power in our lives when we become like little children. And I know it doesn't make sense to most people, but it's the way of Christ, and it's the way of Christ's people. Will Willemann said that in the Middle Ages, the church showed its glorious wisdom by placing statues of martyrs in the front doors, so that when people came into church every Sunday for worship, they were encountered scenes of decapitation and bloody swords and suffering servants of God. And he said the church right up front realized, let's just be honest, there's a cost to discipleship. It's not going to look like everybody else thinks it's going to look. And those martyrs who may have appeared to the world as powerless victims actually changed the world through the power of the child who was born in Bethlehem. What's the devil's work that Jesus comes to destroy? It's sin. And at the heart of sin is selfishness and self-centeredness. Do you think there's anything more destructive to the devil's work in our lives and in our world than to see human beings trusting God. Living the way God designs and desires in humility and love and sacrifice. Believing that this world will be changed only in the same way that God changes it. The humility to living and trusting in this child born in Bethlehem. You know, Advent is a time of waiting, it's hard to wait. But we live in this time waiting for the fullness of Christ's coming. But just because we wait doesn't mean it isn't true. It just means that it hasn't been revealed totally to us yet. And it means that we need to trust and believe even though we don't see it. Trust and believe that this baby is really the king of all the ruler of all. As as the angel says to Mary, this child will rule the house of David forever. The work is done. The final results haven't been revealed quite yet. But this is because the work of Christ is not just incarnation. It's not just crucifixion. It's not just resurrection. It's not just ascension but ultimately will be fulfilled when Christ comes again. And everything will be made plain. Only at the second coming of Christ will we fully experience what Christ has done to the works of the devil. So do we believe that's true? Do we believe that the devil is a defeated foe? that Christ has won? If so, are we living like we believe it? Father, we thank you for what the coming of Christ means for our world, for us. Help us, Lord, to, to grab hold of The power of Christ in our daily lives as a congregation. Make us like Christ. Amen. The song that we're going to sing is a vivid declaration of what Christ has done and how he has done it. His work begun as a baby that will culminate on that day when he returns to judge the living and the dead and to establish his eternal kingdom once and for all and to claim in every way and in every place his rule over the evil one and the whole earth. In our struggle with sin, in our wrestling with the evil one, it makes all the difference in the world to know that this little baby is really the king of all.
1: light of the new day. No one knew he had arrived. Things continued as they had been, while a newborn softly cried. But the heavens It was hard to understand, that her baby, not yet speaking, was the word of God to man. He would tell them of his kingdom, but their hearts would not believe.
0: Father, we thank you that Christ is coming back, that in his coming is power for living through your grace. We pray, Father, that through your spirit, you would help us to live in the truth and the power and the grace of Christ. Amen. Please stand for the benediction. May the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you now and forevermore. Amen.